The St. Louis Board of Aldermen has a lot on its plate over the next few months. That includes responding from a public policy perspective to protests over Jason Stockley's not guilty verdict. One of the people who will have a say in the matter is Alderwoman Sarah Martin. The 11th Ward Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking, the only show about Missouri politics featuring a co-host who is outraged by the lack of Diet Coke with Lime throughout stores <laughs> in St. Louis. I am not that co-host, Jason Rosenbaum. Yeah, you're the co-host battling a cold. <laughs> I, I am battling a bit of a sniffle, and I have not had a soda in almost three years. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, the interim editor for politics for St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is my co-host, who is very upset. Yes, yes, and this is just, I'm serious. I am not kidding about this. I've been a Diet Lime Coke junkie for over a decade, had, couldn't find it in Target and Schnucks anywhere the last week and a half while I was on vacation to stock up. I ran into other people, other junkies, and this. And I am just saying this is this is serious because this is what I I am down to taking a regular regular diet coke and squirting a piece of lime in it. And shoving it in the little can. By the way, that's Joe Manis, political Sorry. reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. Sorry for those who who I, I've obviously opened up a, a, a sore wound here. And, and joining me in studio today is probably somebody who is very uh, perplexed by this soda conversation. Our, our guest today is? Sarah Wood Martin. Do you like soda at all? Uh, I like a Coke every now and then, maybe once a week. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. No <laughs> one should really drink soda. It's, well, it's awful. Listen, I, all, all I can say is I need it for my throat, and I so I drink diet soda fairly regularly. And I'm at an age where, you know... <laughs> There's a lot of vices I don't have, it, but that's one I got. So. Well, we're not going to delve too much into that. <laughs> um, so you're actually the second 11th Ward Alder person we've had on this show. We had uh, the great Tom Villa on a couple of years ago. That's Some right. people say that that was one of our best podcasts because he is so candid. But for people that didn't listen to that, tell us a little bit about the ward boundaries and which neighborhoods you include. Okay. Um, I have south to River de Pere, um, basically the county. East to the river, uh, west um, to a little street called Rendez in Holly Hills. I only take it in maybe four, five blocks of uh, Holly Hills. And then I go um, sort of cut up northeast up to Delore. So if you're familiar with maybe St. Mary's neighborhood. And it is also home to the Carondelet YMCA? It is, the South City Country Club. For the South City Country <laughs> So I knew Sarah before she was an alderman, before... She uh, is married to uh, State Senator Jay Cummel, who's um, also a union leader in the state. So she's part of this power couple. But my point is, <laughs> is that she was active 
and already had some power in her own right. And and also for full disclosure, I knew Sarah back when she lived in Columbia when she managed Mary Still's successful campaign for state representative. And I think we we're at the University of Missouri Columbia at the same time. Yes. Different parts of the J School. I think you were in advertising. Yes, I was in newspaper. Um, so we've just basically told your bio for you, but it, but if you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, your background, why you decided to get involved in politics, this is your chance. Uh, sure. I um, I don't know how far you want to go back, but I grew up in Arkansas and Oklahoma, and I got a postcard from Mizzou, and uh, my stepdad brought me up to look at it, and I loved it. So that's I always wanted to do what you do and cover uh, politics as a journalist. And then I realized in college, I really liked working on campaigns. My first campaign um, was for Senator Carnahan's race. And I started canvassing and volunteering. And I loved it so much. I did it right out of college and um, worked on the East Coast for a while in campaigns and then came back. And I've worked on a ton of campaigns in Missouri, mostly in Columbia area. I'm in Missouri and statewide. And then uh, I worked in the Capitol uh, as a policy director and then I was just sort of uh, weaved in and out of uh, policy positions and campaign positions and lobbying. And, and right now you are actually your your day job is in lobbying. Is that correct? Correct. And um, you you primarily do the Missouri Capitol. Do you do anything other than the Missouri Missouri state politics, or do you uh, do local politics too? Ninety nine percent of the time, it's uh, state capital and association management, and then um, I do a little bit in uh, municipalities or counties, uh, not St. Louis. What groups do you represent? I have a litany. Um, I do a lot of nonprofits. Um, Examples, please. Sure, <laughs> uh, Missouri Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. Um, I have uh, Protect Missouri Workers, um, which is a uh, mainly comprised of physicians and uh, victims of mesothelioma, their family members. Um, I do a non-emergency medical transportation group. Uh, uh, plaintiffs um, work um, work a little bit through the nonprofit um, with trial attorneys. You're, you're not the only lobbyist who has become a local lawmaker. In fact, the mayor of Columbia, Brian Treese, is a very prominent lobbyist in Jefferson City. Also, the mayor of town and country, John Dalton, is also a lobbyist. Um, I do. I, I have talked with you about this before, that there are probably going to be instances where you have to recuse yourself on certain pieces of legislation because it conflicts with somebody that you represent. I think that happened with body cameras recently. Um it, is and that, but that's something you you made people aware of before you ran, from my understanding. Is oh, that absolutely! I ran on it as a positive. It was on my campaign literature because I thought I could bring that skill level and skill set to the to the board of aldermen. Um, you know, there's obviously there's uh, the Missouri Ethics Commission that um, has a litany of compliance uh, measures that you take, and then there's also measures that you take at the board. But um, like mostly everyone else with a day job from time to time you have to recuse yourself and i'm sure that there's a few attorney aldermen who sure. occasionally have to recuse themselves on certain issues now since you've been on the board i mean kind of how would you describe the climate and kind of are you with just so our listeners get a sense of this are you with part of a certain faction or just kind of how you see things now as our listeners should know the st louis board of aldermen is overwhelmingly democratic so it's a matter of 
faction. At this point, I think it's 100 percent Democratic, but I think that's kind of deceiving because I think it's split into multiple different factions that sometimes overlap with each other and sometimes compete with each other. Is is that fair to say? I would say that's fair. I think I don't I don't know. I am a transplant, but I think you you used to maybe be more along. And there was a a, um, St. Louis American article on this not long ago in regards to Prop P, but it used to be more um, racially divided. But now you're seeing um, a divide more in, uh, I guess, political values and how progressive or conservative you are. I did run on the fact that I feel like I um, work well with different groups. I wouldn't just put myself in one click, if you will. Um, I definitely, uh, at this point, I am seen as more part of the establishment just in politics in general in Missouri. Just the older you get and the more establishment, I guess, you're seeing. Well, and I, I mentioned this on another show, but the, the factions have been given names. One is like the quote-unquote establishment versus right. the quote-unquote progressives, which I have found to be kind of a misleading I agree. situation. And I think I even told this to when Megan Green was on because it gives the connotation that the quote-unquote establishment people are conservative or whatnot. And right. There clearly are some more conservative lawmakers, but some of the uh, quote-unquote establishment people that we're talking about are people like Christine Ingracia, Scott Ogilvie, yourself, and I wouldn't classify any of you as conservative. You're all fairly left of center on most issues. Oh, for sure. I consider myself uh, progressive. I always have. But I do think that um, maybe some of the people that I am I associate with maybe in Jefferson City are, I mean, I, as a staff person in Jefferson City, you really get to know um you know, you become friends with the staff people, you in the Republican Party and both parties. And then you also, um, as a lobbyist, you get to know everyone really well. So I think that's um, I think those relationships are a good thing. But I think that when it comes down to races in St. Louis City, uh, people view that as, oh, well, maybe, you know, you're more old school or you're not as progressive because you have those friendships. Now, how do you kind of see like the mood on the board right now and just sort of some of the uh major issues and again how these factions sort of play it i think that you're seeing um i don't think it's as divisive as maybe people uh like to think it is um but you are seeing some of these issues play out in some not so popular sexy issues if you will like uh tax abatement or you know incentives you're seeing a divide there um you're seeing a divide some of these divides aren't so honest on whether they're progressive or conservative because some of it's just your political allegiance and who you supported for this or that or who you you know who you were supported by so that's not always the truth but uh i think you will i think you're going to start to see I mean, we have a, a vacancy that just got filled now and you you will encounter um a more truly progressive group with a different thought process than maybe the older aldermen. Um, I think the older guard wants to do what were typical alderman duties like putting in stop signs and making sure that trash is taken out where the younger folks, they do want to uh, add more policy into the conversation down at the board and look more long-term, perhaps. I think what you were referring to, and we are recording this on Monday, November 27th, but just a few hours ago was announced that one of your former colleagues, Alderman Stephen Conway, was appointed assessor of St. Louis. And already there's kind of a buzz about who is going to succeed him. Um, it's very possible that the alderman, or the, it's very possible that the committee man and the committee woman in that ward may both run for the seat, which would possibly require the central committee to pick who ends up being it. I'm not going to get into the minutiae <laughs> right. of that, but 
It's it's interesting because we were kind of talking about this beforehand. Paul Thaler, and I don't know if I pronounced his last name right. I, actually, I think that's correct. And uh, Annie Rice, I, from 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 just reading about both of them, they they seem relatively similar as far as political allegiances, but they're both supported by different factions essentially, sure. and that might be what one of the things you were talking about. Well, and I, th- I think you'll see that Annie, the committee woman, is um, perhaps a little more out there vocally. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know um, about Mr. Failers or Paul so much, but uh, definitely Ms. Rice is more out there um, with her. Uh, political views, so that's one reason why we know more. What's the gender breakdown on the board right now? Oh, um, you know, I don't know. It's got to be close to 50-50. I think it's like either 40-60 or 45-55, but there's certainly a higher percentage of women in the Board of Aldermen than, say, the Missouri House or the Missouri Senate. How does that change things? I mean, we, we, we both were in Jefferson City. We know the problems there, but is it is it a more welcoming place for women elected officials because there are more women? Oh, I, I certainly think so. And there's just more camaraderie. I think that uh, just what we've seen nationally on uh, women coming out and saying they've been sexually harassed, uh, that's happened to all of us. And so there is more of an understanding down there, even if you don't agree on everything, that there, there's some uh, you know, kindred spirits there um, when it comes down to decision making on certain issues. Uh, just even like hiring uh, personnel. I mean, we talked about that when we hired um, a couple or filled a couple different positions. And and the other key difference between uh, state politics and city politics is the mayor is a woman. True. And at last time I checked, the governor is still a man. So. So now, <laughs> what do you see as the biggest issues right now? We were talking about some of this before we went on the air, but I'll let you start. Just talk about what what you see as the big challenges or the big issues at the board is going to be confronting over the next year? Uh, One right off the top uh, that we talked about earlier was the audit. I think that the will is there from the people. Now, everyone wants something different audited, so that's going to be a big showdown. Would it be a state audit, or would you guys hire outside auditor? What sort of parameters are we talking about here? What makes that tough with the state audit, my understanding is that you don't get – you can get an estimate, but you won't get a solid fiscal note until you make that request. So I don't know uh, what a, what is cheaper. Um, I don't think people realize that it could take years yes. to do this. So if you're doing it just for political reasons, I mean, we could see election cycle come and go before we actually see results. And, and there was this fight in the county about this, about oh, uh, yeah. about yeah. whether there should be, you know, Nicole Galloway should come in um, or whether it can be done with outside auditors. And there were definitely and I, this was pretty recent. There were definitely political overtones about that entire situation. Sure. This one may be a little bit different in the sense that you may actually see some consensus from a lot of different factions that this might actually be a good thing for the city to have someone like Nicole Galloway come in and do this. Is that kind of what you're sensing right now? I think so. Uh, I think people will get sticker shock with the cost. And I think that that may be where we see, uh, you know, let's put out an RFP and see what comes back. Um, the other thing is, is I think that um, you will definitely see people. Uh, I, I think there, they will, there will be consensus, but I don't think it won't be without a fight on which offices you do and how you do it. But looking forward, what we need to decide is, and what I think the best policy is, is to have a policy. That's what we're lacking. So let's get together and find out what other uh, cities, counties, municipalities do, and um, put. 
a schedule in place for the offices to and departments to be audited regularly. Now, um, we were also discussing this, and I actually wrote about this uh, back in February and March when we were getting ready to elect a new mayor. I mean, the city of St. Louis has had money problems going back over 30 years, but uh, it ebbs and flows, and right now it's sort of flowing again, a problem, and part of it's um, various issues. The, the fact that there's a number of the city has major pension obligations when yes. it used to have a larger workforce, and so you've got a smaller workforce in some ways helping to pay the pensions mm -hmm. of this larger workforce that left, plus um, just the the challenges of, you know, how much it costs to uh, collect trash collection and all this stuff. I'm just interested in how you see it and what you think the board is most concerned about. I think some people um, are really, uh, yeah, some people are very concerned about it. For instance, my colleague, Kara Spencer, she's much more of a numbers person. And so she sees um, sees the future a little bit better than most. And I mean, it's going to be a problem when we address it. I don't know. Uh, but I feel like there's not, again, and maybe this was just the transition uh, with a new mayor, but it was sort of just, let's just do this budget. Let's just pass it. And let's not think too far ahead and we're going to have to or we will be in some serious trouble and i'm saying i'm taking off my journalist hat and putting on my st louis city residents hat so we've now gone through two election cycles in the last seven or eight months where we've raised the sales tax by a full penny one was for you know prop p which was for police officer salaries and firefighter salaries which is totally understandable the second one, though, was for this potpourri of other things, including uh, North-South Metrolink, which may never happen. Um, I, my question is, it's hard for me to understand as, as just the outside looking in that there's all this money problem when we're raising taxes by that large of amount. And that, that shouldn't that take care of some of the issues? Or is it just so bad that I raising think a sales tax? It's so by bad that raising a sales tax, tax, excuse me, is a band aid for that issue at the moment. Um, but there probably are more efficient ways to do things, and this goes back to the St. Louis problem too: <laughs> the city, county. The do we want to share more resources? Do we want to merge services? I think that that's what will eventually force this conversation. And I don't think that a lot of people want to just say, let's just say a city, but that's not the truth. Well, I mean, the city and county could merge some services without merging. Correct. And I mean, so as, how much of a discussion has there been on that regard? Nothing that I've heard other than what you see from Better Together or the groups that, I mean, I guess that really is essentially the group that is pushing it. What's the Board of Aldermen think about such talk? I don't know because I just don't hear a lot about it. Um, we obviously there's those who um, I mean, St. Louis is still somewhat a patronage operation, whether it's officially or not, and so obviously there's a lot of concern about jobs, which is completely understandable and totally reasonable. There's also I mean, those jobs are in place also to provide services to the citizens. So when you, if you lose those jobs, or you lose those departments, are you going to have the same services? Um, I mean, there are all these questions, but I don't uh, hear a lot about it unless it's more, an it, I hear an anti-REC sentiment, but not necessarily an anti-merger. And, and you're referring to Rex Sinkfeld. Yes. 
the, <laughs> the wealthy semi-retired financier who is kind of fueling some, who supports some sort of merger. I, I know this is an inside baseball concern because I don't know how many people in the city actually follow how St. Louis County government runs. But right now, it's a political warfare there. Right, is exactly. there is there any concern that especially if the city joins as a municipality and the county basically takes over a lot of services that this political infighting between the council and the county executive is going to make it harder for them to absorb all those people? Or do you think that that's kind of a temporary thing? Oh, I don't know if it's temporary or not, but I think that people, it would definitely would be a concern. You know, when you turn on the news at night, you, you see that every night, especially every Tuesday night. Yeah. So I think people are, people understand that and they're concerned. And it's not a new phenomenon. I've now been covering St. Louis County government on and off now for six or seven years. It was like this when Dooley was in place. And I know, I know that St. Louis City gets criticized a lot for being incompetent, and right. the county people are like, well, we don't want this failed city right. to join. There's but maybe never... we don't want that. <laughs> and so I hear that a lot. I have a lot of county-dwelling friends that are always giving me grief about how the city operates. And so... I, I, I strongly suggest that they sit in on a St. Louis County Council <laughs> so, meeting, and maybe their opinion would change. Go so ahead. do you have a position as far as the city-county merger? Oh, I think overall it has to happen. Um, Why? I think we can't compete um, nationally um, with the structure that we have now. I think that just what we see on these these smaller municipalities struggling, I, I truly believe in regionalism. We, when you know things happen in Ferguson or things happen in Carondelet in my ward, that affects the whole region. Our crime numbers are skewed. Um, a lot of our numbers are skewed. Uh, it's just, I think eventually, like uh, many other cities, it will be better for us um, as St. Louis as a whole. Now, how we do it is a different story. Um, one of the things that has been in the news recently, and this is kind of euphemistic to say, but we're now in like month three or four of the Stockley protests. And I remember talking with you soon after that situation about what the public policy agenda would be. And one of the things that I've heard from from many people, including your colleague, Alderman Terry Kennedy, is possibly giving subpoena power to the Civilian Oversight Review Board. I'm going to play a clip right now from him, and he'll kind of explain why subpoena power is important and how it would actually happen. What subpoena power will give this board is the capacity to compel individuals to come in and testify. It will give them the ability to compel individuals, and it may not just be the police, but others, to provide information, data, statistics, video, whatever is necessary to be able for this board to make an informed decision. Now, the legislation already requires the police department to turn over all of the data, including any videos, recordings that they have. Subpoena power would give them that extra ability to get even information outside of the police when they need to be able to get it. It is an essential part of it. Uh, the mayor at that time, was Slay, said that he would not sign anything that has subpoena power in it. Um, but then we got other, dis other legal opinions saying that the best way to go with this is really is to put it on the citizen ballot. So th there are obviously some technical and procedural things that you have to consider. Uh, one of the things that you just heard is you may have to put this up for a citywide vote. There's a possibility you may have to go, th go to the legislature to change state law. But with that as a backdrop, how realistic do you think it is in this post-Stockley environment that the Board of Aldermen would seriously consider giving the Oversight Board subpoena power? 
Oh, I think that it's, uh, you have a great chance at it. That is talked about a lot. And I think that's one thing uh, that you see um, more consensus on as far as what uh, the protesters um, want and what can be done. Why is there consensus? And what exactly do you think it is to have Sabina Bauer just kind of if you were to have your your dream legislation, how would that be crafted? I'm not an expert on this topic, but I think that uh, in order for the Civilian Oversight Board to have any teeth and to matter, you have to give them the subpoena power. And I think it's better for citizens. I think that it will leave fewer sort of dangling questions out there after events happen, especially in this world with social media. And I think we need and the public deserves more answers. I think it also can provide uh, more protection for the officers as well. I think a lot of times uh, you have, um, you know, two sides of the story. And um, I know in other cities they've said maybe the police officers were in favor in the beginning, but it's been very beneficial. Is there going to be a lot of opposition, though, from, like, the police officers union to this? Because I don't think that they were on board with subpoena power during this entire I don't believe they are, so there there might be. Um, But I think that even folks who are, quote-unquote, a little more conservative, even in my neighborhood, they would support that. What other things do you think might come of this post-Stockley situation besides subpoena power? Or is that the main thing that the Board of Aldermen can do? I think it's the main thing that the Board of Aldermen can do. I don't know. I think hopefully it will uh, affect uh, what kind of chief is hired. Because that would be the responsibility of Mayor Krusen, not only to pick the chief, but if she wants different policies within the police department, that's her responsibility. The Board of Aldermen has some role, but I would say it's more of an advisory role. That's one of the consequences of local control. It gives the mayor a lot of power to shape the police department in, in the way she sees fit. Um, do you have confidence that she'll be able to do that? And if so, why? I met with the, uh, not just me, but the, uh, my colleagues and I met with the consultants that they, that uh, Mayor Cruson brought in. And I, you know, I don't know, they could have just been listening to us and regurgitating, but I do feel like they listened and they've seen, this is, St. Louis's situation, which I think what a lot of people don't realize, it, it's everywhere. It's, a, it's all over the United States. Anything, the Stockley incident could happen anywhere. Um, so they did understand. They obviously have a lot of experience in law enforcement. Uh, so I felt like we were, you know, that we kind of were heard. Um, but one thing that people don't talk about in all this is just the day-to-day interaction with police that all St. Louisans have. And that is why I think that you can will eventually see some changes in how neighborhoods are policed and how um, or what kind of chief we have. Because I, in my ward, I don't get a lot of positive reviews. And that's just, you know, hey, my car was broken into um, to larger, scarier crimes. So is crime sort of the top issue in your Ward or just kind of what do you see? I mean, what do you hear from your constituents that the big issues that you have to pay attention to? Crime and trash. Can you be more detailed? Illegal dumping. And that's one thing that they would like if officers are driving around. Now we're going to have cameras and supposedly we'll have two more officers dedicated to it. 
But the illegal dumping from contractors or people in the county coming in and dumping it in the ward, and I know that it's not just the areas or the wards that border the county. It is everywhere. Where do they dump it? Just because we have the dumpster system and set up. They oh. just come in and will just dump it right in your alley or on vacant properties. So is it, is it like literally on the ground or do they just find a dumpster and dump the stuff in? Um, mostly just on the ground. I wish they would make it in the dumpster. It's interesting you mention uh, concerns about police not being responsive to crime because we've had other aldermen on the show before the Proposition P vote happened that Yes, there was a, in some wards. There's concerns about how police officers are be are interacting with people and whether, especially their their relationships with the African American community. But you also had African American aldermen saying that they're just not present enough in their wards, and that might be a reason why Proposition P ended up passing in every North Side African American majority ward because there was a fear that if it didn't pass, some of the police officers who are there now and who have made established ties with the people there mm-hmm. would go to the county, especially if the, the pay gap is 10000 or $15,000. Have you heard any of officers that are in your neck of the woods considering leaving to St. Louis County even after Proposition P? I haven't. I think I, I'm in touch with the captain a lot and he's already vested. And we still do have a better pension system is my understanding. But I have not heard that. Now, I whether it's, you know, how much is true and what numbers are true, I do hear that we're losing so many out of the academy and blah, blah, blah. But I don't, not the actual officers I have in my neighborhood. And the officers that, you know, the sort of neighborhood liaison officers, I think most people are pretty happy with. That is, I think, a big reason why Prop P passed because they do have a relationship, especially with the, you know, they come to the neighborhood meetings and the ward meetings and there they are present. Are there specific um, ideas or things that either you're developing or that your constituents are talking to you about as far as trying to reduce crime or address some of these other issues in the ward? There are always different ideas. One thing that I really, really like that Mayor Cruson has done is given a little more power to officers to call forestry and say, hey, this canopy in this park needs to get raised so it's a brighter or a street light is out to streets and that gets fixed immediately. I've seen immediate action and that is wonderful. One thing I really, this is my pet project, but I really would like to see is I'm very active um, on the state level and St. Louis level with human trafficking. And people do not realize that putting, a, you know, people think trafficking is like putting a woman in a van and taking her over to Illinois. That is not trafficking. Having a pimp is makes you a trafficked victim. So I would like to see a little more empathy and a little more understanding from officers because prostitution is also a problem in my ward and other wards. I would like to see a little more education and training on that. I think it's really important um, to uh, not only reduce prostitution but also just help with this vast problem that it's got to get talked about. Now, is it younger women? Are they from the city? Are they brought in? And what parts, I, I think I know, but I want you to say, as far as what parts, what in your in your ward where prostitution is particularly evident? South Broadway is a huge area, and it always has been. If you talk to older residents, they will say, this has been going on my whole life. A 90-year-old will say, this, there's, you can always get a prostitute on South Broadway. I, I think most of them do live in the area. Uh, well, one problem is, is if they get picked up, then they have to 
um, they usually get an ex parte or they a cease and desist and they can't come back to their own home even where they could get support. But no doubt it is fueled by the opiate crisis. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I guess there are so many issues. But uh, for the opiate crisis, uh, and this is one just from my experience in Jeff City, this is one um, topic where really the urban and rural folks should come together more and realize that maybe it's not so different because it's affecting everyone and um, all different municipalities. But I see so much crime from derived from um, the drug addiction crisis and heroin and um, it's playing a huge role in the prostitution and other, you know, all the way from petty to larger crimes like homicides. And, and I've brought up this point before with actually St. Charles County Executive Steve Elman, but there is this kind of, I don't want to say, that, uh, there is this kind of sentiment among people that don't live in St. Louis City, that it's like an out-of-control, crime-ridden place that they essentially have no responsibility Mm -hmm. over. Yet I've heard anecdotally that a lot of people in St. Louis County, Jefferson County, St. Charles County, when they go to buy heroin, they go to St. Louis City. Maybe sometimes they don't. Um, but, it's funny. We, but, I, I hear that we get it. I mean, people are coming up from the county and they get off at the exit, which is I'm the first exit. Yeah. And there's, yeah. The, I am told from officers and users that they're buying it in the county now. I mean, should we argue over that? No, we have a crisis that's affecting everyone. Yeah, that's my well, point. Is it down? So they get off the exit off 55. Is Correct. What, but that's what my point. Saying. It's like it seems like. It, this should be a regional, everybody work yes. together thing, as opposed to just blaming the city for all. I of think this. outside of politics, that's what you see. Yeah, you definitely see people working together. But again, yeah, there's a total. There, it's fun for a lot of the outstate areas or Saint or Saint Charles, you know, to kind of mock Saint Louis and yeah, it's like it's like Armageddon or whatever. It, it should be a, a regional response to this. That's the reason I brought up that right. point in the first place. Right. Um, generally, though, we talked about how uh, the mayor has dealt with crime. What are your overall impressions of her tenure so far? She's been in office, I think, five, six, seven months now. About seven months, I think. Um, you know, she obviously was under a lot of scrutiny after the Stockley decision. But as I said on Twitter, Proposition P passing by almost 60 percent has to be chalked up as a major political victory and a policy victory since she was put a lot on the line to get that to pass. And there was some active opposition. So I'm, sure. I'm curious, given that backdrop, what your what your thoughts are about her. Well, I don't, I've never, I was elected at the same time, so I've never served under another mayor. However, I think that she, um, she does bring a little, I think that Mayor Cruson looks for the long term and not just the short term, and she's willing to sort of weather the criticism while she makes a good decision. Um, just the hiring of the public safety director, that was a great decision. Did it come right after the Stockley verdict or did it come right before? I'm sure it was in the works because you don't just get someone with that with those credentials by calling them the night before. But I think that she just sort of stayed the course, got the public safety director, and then sort of that alleviated a lot of heat. But I do think that uh, Mayor Cruson cares deeply. A lot of people think, oh, she just lives in the Central West End in her mansion and uh, Mayor Cruson moved in there before it was what we know now as a Central West End, um, endured a major incident there and stayed. And I think that's to be commended. And I think that that means that she cares about her city. And I don't think that um, 
I don't think the, all the criticism has been fair because I think that you have someone who's working very hard and really looking at the long term. There's obviously some hurt feelings because the election was so close. Um, a lot of supporters of Tashara Jones, for example, are often very critical of the mayor. I think even if Tashara Jones had won, she would have been in a similar situation given how close the race is, yeah. race was. Correct. Um, do you think that's part of the dynamics, too, that she just didn't win by an overwhelming amount in the Democratic primary and therefore she doesn't have a hugely broad coalition to work with? That's true, I think, to some degree. I also just think it's politics and people want people to fail and it's just how it works. And I think when people see other, you know, elected press conferences or um you know, critiques on Twitter, they have to think where that's coming from and is that true and think a little more critically. Um, just in the last few minutes, we are going to pull the focus back because I know that you do pay attention to state politics as well. You know, it was interesting. I was at the, the Democratic watch party on Election Day last year and they had uh, very few people speak in make victory speeches. One of the people was your husband, Jake Hummel, because everybody else lost. Um, which was kind of interesting because that seat is like overwhelmingly Democratic. After that really, really bad year, do you see light at the end of the tunnel for the Democrats or do you think that they still have a long way to go to get back to where they were maybe in 2006 or 2008? I'm a very cynical person and <laughs> I remember that night really well and I remember thinking I'm not even celebrating appropriately because my husband just won the Senate seat and oh my gosh, what's happened to us? Um, and I was already worrying about certain issues, but I am coming around. Um, the world did not end. Uh, the Democrats have picked up, I think, more supporters. We may not agree all the time. Uh, you may see, you know, the factions between the old guard and the more the newer um, progressives. But I think all that will come into play, and people will get behind their candidates. And I think that the pendulum will swing. And we'll see a lot of support for Auditor Galloway as well as Senator McCaskill. Now, you know, I mean, obviously, every any Democrat knows you're going to have to have a, a large turnout. It's not just the percentage; it's the numbers. And um, with Democrats often being it, I mean, I mean, this is a joke that goes back a hundred years, saying you know the Democratic Party is like herding cats. You know, it's true. It's completely <laughs> true. And I mean, Will Rogers used to make jokes about that, and that was like in 1920s. But very uh, famous Oklahoman. By that's right. Way. I could go on and on about him. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the reasons I mentioned him because you mentioned Drew up there. But I think I mean I'm just kind of wondering with these factions, with the strange Mistockley. I did a story on this a couple of weeks ago. Just kind of the some of it's the some racial divisions over it, but just the overall backdrop. Uh, just your in the Unity Dinner, the Truman Dinner, which featured Al Franken. Now has <laughs> I wasn't so, there. <laughs> has, well, I was there, and it was pretty popular. But now, you know, sure. there's a whole. You know, no one wants right. to mention that Franken was the headliner. Right. So my my point is, with all that as a backdrop, I mean, how do you think getting the energy up so people actually turn out? I mean, what's I mean, I think there's there's an undercurrent of frustrations, too, in places that maybe we talk about the good old days with some of the, you know, you had Wes Schumeyer, Tom Shively, and we talk about uh, some of those folks. But I think you're going to see those districts swing because just look at what's going on with the Board of Education. And did you see those pictures of I don't know if one of you were there, but of the rural uh, superintendents, I think you're going to start seeing um 
some backlash to the policies that have been largely ignored by rural uh, Republican voters. I know we, we're going to be talking about uh, Claire McCaskill and likely Josh Hawley probably for the next year. But I've made the argument that actually the race for auditor could be more important for the future for several reasons. Uh, one, if clean Missouri passes, they're going to play a big role in choosing the demographer. I've mentioned that before. I'm not going to go into one of my redistricting tangents on the show. We, the, you and I have talked about this uh, <laughs> for years now. I, I, I w- I'm going to restrain okay. myself. <laughs> I can, we can have another show about that. Yes. But the other thing that I think you mentioned, I think the other big thing from a political standpoint is the Democrats need a bench. And I think that Nicole Galloway is seen as a key element of that bench. Uh that's my observation. I'm sure that you share it. Absolutely. But, I think it, Nicole but, is the whole package as far as a candidate goes. And I would hate to be her and to feel all that pressure. But I do think that it's not – I feel like with uh, Nicole, people will be excited. And it's not just kind of like, oh, we're just throwing someone up there. We are fortunate. So we may not have that deep of a bench, but I think we have quality candidates. Um, are there any particular people you the Democrats that, that you think people should be paying attention to? I think there are some younger uh, I, people, I guess, around our age, Jason, that yes. um, <laughs> that uh, are in the House right now that are going to be up and coming. And, For example? Uh, Crystal Quaid, and she's in Springfield and incredibly sharp and uh, has made a name for herself almost immediately as a really well-respected policymaker in Jeff City. Uh, you've got um, just some people out in those areas. Uh, Kip Kendrick, I don't know what Kip will decide to do, but uh, just an incredibly responsible and thoughtful lawmaker. Yeah. And uh, by the way, I think we're both 33, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So us us millennials are starting to take over key positions of power right now. I'm, I'm sure that makes uh, Joe really happy. It, make, <laughs> well, it makes hey, me over Because both of my kids are, the, you know, in roughly the same I mean, age range, Elijah, so I'm fine with it. Elijah Har will be the first millennial speaker of the House, and I don't think he'll be the last unless we have a string of, like, 70 and 80-year-old speaker of the Houses for the, for the next few years. Anyways, we want to thank you for being on our show. Thanks for having me. I'm yeah. a big fan. I'm a big fan of the show, too, but I guess that goes without saying. (laughs) For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at jrosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... jmanis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would people follow you on Twitter? At Sarah with an H, W. Martin. And uh, just as an aside, I do want to wish a happy birthday to my grandmother and Ponca City, Oklahoma native, Sarah Gassman. As a fellow Oklahomian... um, I, I that is my connection to that state and I feel like I couldn't end that show without mentioning that so go Oklahoma go we'll be back next time until then so long mm-hmm.